If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. That's where we are today as we've been making our way through this book of Genesis. Today we have reached chapter 19. And as you turn there, I'm going to tell you uh, that this passage today is is not an easy one. Uh, It's not an easy one to read. It's not an easy one to process. Uh, But in this passage, with with all of its darkness, uh, with all the darkness, all the with all of that, with all the suffering, with all the depravity that is so visible here in Genesis 19, we still see, we still see a glimmer of light. We still, still see a spark of the gospel shining there, even in this passage. And so if you will, I'd ask you to stand with me, stand up with me where you are, and, and let's, let's take this step forward together in Genesis 19 today. We stand to demonstrate uh, that that the Word of God is our foundation. It is the rock upon which we stand. And, and so we're picking it up here in Genesis 19, starting in, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's not difficult to find brokenness, to find sin. We see it in this passage. We see it in our lives. We see it in the world around us. It's not hard to find these things. Uh, But Lord, I pray that what you would show us today is is a picture of your grace in the midst of all of that. That you would speak to us through your word that we might hear from you today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you stood with me, you can be seated now. Um, back, in, back in Genesis 3. Uh, back in Genesis 3, we saw the fall of humanity. We saw the fall of all of creation with him into what we call sin. Now that's a word that we use a lot in the church. We talk about it in the church. We talk about it 
a little bit outside the church, but primarily we talk about sin within the church. And sin is a, it's a kind of a weighty word. It's what the, our Westminster Shorter Catechism has defined sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And so what that means, all right, if we can just be straight about it, what that means and what that assumes, like from a base level, is that there is an established moral law. And, and we understand the nature of laws. Like we, we get that. We understand laws. We understand speed limits. We understand all those sorts of things. As even the youngest among us understand there are laws. Like, and, and even laws of nature. Like we have the law of gravity, right? That all of us are subject to. And our bodies, our, our physical bodies are governed by all of these sort of like biological laws. And so you need, you absolutely have to have oxygen. You have to have food. You have to have water in order to survive, in order to live in the absence of any of those things or the absence of the faculties to process those things. Any disruption of that in our bodies will will make it impossible to live. And, and every kid, and listen, every kid who has ever been at the swimming pool or down at the lake with their parents and asked them to time how long they can hold their breath understands the necessity, the law that requires breath. And so laws aren't foreign to us. Like we understand their existence. And what the Bible says, what almost all of humanity agrees on, is that there is a moral law in the created universe. That's why we look at certain things. That's why when you turn on the news and you see certain things, you go, that's wrong or, or that's right. You see, only if there is a moral law, only if there is a law that says what is right, that this is how things are supposed to be, it's only within that framework that we could ever call anything wrong. That's why C.S. Lewis said, whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right or wrong, you will find that same man going back on this a moment later. It's what we saw back in Genesis 3. What we saw the tragic fracture that resulted from Adam and Eve's rebellion against the law of our Creator. And by virtue of the reality of that, of the reality that we find ourselves firmly settled in a broken, fallen world today. We've seen the results of that break in our own lives. We see, we see sin at work around us. We see, I mean, you can just you pick it. We see division. We see pain. We see sickness and suffering. We see heartache and we see loss. We experience these things. If we're honest, we do these things. We see prejudice. We see discrimination. And we see the real casualties that result from it. We see jealousy and bitterness, right? We are jealous. We get jealous and we are bitter. And because of it, we know, we see how hostility never seems to be too difficult to find, right? This is life as we know it in this fallen, fractured, and sin-saturated world. And what we see in Genesis 19 is an acute awareness in Lot. So now we're at Abraham's nephew, Lot. We see an acute awareness in him of the sinfulness of his surroundings. 
It starts right there at the beginning as he begs the two angels. You see that right there at the beginning. He begs the two angels not to stay out in the open. Right there in verse 2, this is what it says. We see him saying, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. You see, there's a warning in that invitation. There's an inherent warning in his invitation. He's not just inviting them over. He's inviting them out of something. He's going, you don't want to be here. This is not a good place for you. It's not safe. Let me help you. Let me just come on with me and I'll help you get out. That's the invitation Lot's giving. He's like, come stay with me because you don't want to stay here. And so we might justifiably ask Lot, looking back at him, we might ask, then why are you there? What are you doing here? And what's interesting, okay, is that as we find him here in this place, and he seems so terrified of it, what stands out is that Lot invited them to his, what what did he invite them to? Did you see it? Lot invited them to his house. He didn't invite them to his tent. And we need to remember, this is why the context is so key. If we remember Abraham from just a couple uh, weeks ago, Abraham is still living up in the hills in a tent. He's living in a tent on the hill while Lot is settled into a house in the valley. See, even in spite of his, even in spite of his obvious fear, he's, he's made this place his home. And there, there even seems to be some evidence here that he's, that he's had a fairly successful run in Sodom. And his commentary on this passage, Richard Belcher suggests that, this, that his place at the city gate suggests that he's an integral member of the city, if not a leader in some capacity. And so he doesn't just have a house there, right? He's not just in the suburbs. He's not just kind of hiding and maybe going into town every once in a while. No, he's there established in the heart of the city. These are his people. He even calls them his brothers down in verse 7. So he has made his home there. It would stand, now. if that's the case, we know now that he's married. So any rational assumption would be that he's married a woman of Sodom. He's had daughters who are of Sodom. He has daughters who are betrothed to men of Sodom. And it shows us that his willingness to associate with this sinful place and tolerate the sin of this place and make make his home among the sin of this place is is what ultimately leads to this terrible position that he's found himself in. And there's no defense. Listen to me. There is no defense for what we see from him in verse eight. All right. I know that, I know that we have some young ears in the room and I want to be, I want to be sympathetic to that. All right. So if you've ever read the Bible, you know that when it says that they men wanted to know those men, you know that we're talking about something intimate. We're talking about something, something, (laughs) something not okay. So you can explain that to your kids when the time is right. But at least at this point, there is nothing redeeming about what we see from, from Lot in verse eight, period, you know, full stop. At this point, Lot is a terrible father. 
And anyone who would try to justify this proposal in defense of hospitality, saying he's just trying to protect these guests, is is reaching here. You're giving too much credit to our boy Lot, okay? He should have fought against the mob. He should have been willing to die at the door in order to protect those inside the house, not offered his daughters to them. Period. But what this reveals, okay, is that there's a genuine connection between our proximity to sinful actions and the willingness in our own hearts to participate. And so we need to be careful. That's what we need to recognize, that when, the closer we get to sin, the more we tolerate, the more we allow it to get, a, to get a hold in and around our lives, the more we allow it to become normative in how we think and feel and function, the more dangerous it is for us. Now look at verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, Sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law, to be jesting. Okay, so they think he's joking, right? This is what this is what the wickedness of mine always does. We we hear the warning of scripture. We hear people saying, "Listen, you got to turn from sin." And we go, "What what are you, what are you talking about?" Like anyway, this is exactly how his sons-in-law feel. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my soul. You don't tell me what to do. Here's 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, "Up Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has, has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. All right, so he's pointing to a different city at this point. He's pointing to, we don't, we don't know the name of it quite yet. We'll get to that. But he's pointing at this other city. And here's what it said. He says, it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. One of the things, <laughs> one of the things that we talk about more than I would ever want to have to admit, but we talk about a lot in our house, okay, is how many times we have to ask our kids to do something before they do it. Now, now if you're a parent, you understand that. If you've ever been a child, you probably understand it too. We are a hard-headed people. And I think this is a constant battle in our home, right? And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure they learned it from us, okay? So there's my, 
there's my confession to you. One of the things that Paul Tripp has said when it comes to parenting is that the most helpful thing to remember about your teenager is that they are more like you than unlike you. That can be a terrifying thing for some of us as we, as we see ourselves exposed in our, in our children. So I, so, I, so I know that my kids got their stubbornness from me. I know that. And if this scene that we have here in Genesis 19 tells us anything about Lot's father, it's that he was stubborn too. Because the angels have given a warning. And it's more than just an encouragement to move there in verse 15. They say, up, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. They're going, move, man. They are not playing around here. How did Lot respond? Did you see it? It says, but he lingered. Now, why would he do that? If the angels in heaven if the very angels of heaven are telling you to move, and these are proven angels, these aren't your buddies who are like, you know what, I think I've got some gifts. They had literally blinded the men of the city the night before. So they've demonstrated who they are and where they come from. If they are telling you to move, to get up, it's probably a good idea to just go ahead and get up and move, right? I mean, surely... Isn't that what we'd like to think that we would do? The angel comes, tell us to get out of the city. Surely we would do that. Like, I want to believe that about myself. I want to believe that about you. But verse 16 says, but he lingered, but he delayed, but he hesitated. Remember, Lot was a wealthy man. He was a wealthy man. That's what brought him to Sodom. That is the thing that brought him to that city. He was a wealthy man. It's probably what helped him to, uh, to achieve his status in the city. You see, like almost all known human societies, wealth and possessions almost always determine social status. We look at the job. We look at the house. We look at the car. Or in this case, you know, maybe flocks and herds. And so Lot's looking at the situation. He's taking this view as, as, as the angels are saying, get out. He's, he's looking at the situation and he knows that he's about to lose. He's about to lose it all. He's about to lose all his comfort. He's about to lose his status. He's about to lose so much of what made up his identity in the world, even things that he had worked hard to achieve, worked hard to build, worked hard to maintain. You see, the angels, you notice, they didn't tell him, pack up all your stuff. They didn't give him that direction. They didn't say, hey, listen, you got a month, get all your stuff together, get all your herds, get all your flocks, get all your workers, get all those people. No, they said, grab your wife, grab your daughters and go on. I'm going to go on and get out. Or what? Are you going to be swept away in the punishment of the city? You can either leave or you might lose your life. But he delayed. 
Lot hesitated. Remember, Lot was a wealthy man. He was a wealthy man. And his hesitation tells us something about his heart. John Currid points out, even though he knows that God is going to destroy the city, he is reluctant and lingers. Even though he knows that God acts according to his word, he is reluctant and lingers. Even though he knows there is great danger and he runs to tell his family, he is reluctant and lingers. Even though the very angels of God instruct him and urge him, he is reluctant and lingers. J.C. Rowell says he was slow when he should have been quick backward when he should have been forward, trifling when he should have been hastening, loitering when he should have been hurrying, cold. Lot was cold when he should have been hot. You know, this is the same warning that's given, that's given to us with our sin. We see it in our lives. We know it's there. We're told in the Bible and we understand with our hearts that this is what separates us from God. That the wages of sin is death. That that is what comes with sin. That is what we earn. And yet, instead of killing our sin, instead of running from it, instead of getting up and going away from it and leaving it behind, instead of all of that, all too often we dance with it. We try to hide it. We try to coddle it and control it. We try to make sure that that if it's going to be seen, it's only seen by the right people. All of us have this sort of other identity that we sometimes allow to come out. And those people who who see it, they've accepted it. And then what happens is it begins to grow and more and more. It grows bigger and bigger. And so we coddle it. We manicure it. We dress it up. So often I treat the sin in my life like I treat my yard. I don't go and do the hard work of of finding and extracting sin, of uprooting the sin and pulling it out. I, I, I treat it like the weeds in my yard. I just mow it over, just sort of temporarily camouflage it so it fits in with all the good stuff. So it's not so visible that it'll get me in trouble. So it's not so visible. Here's what I want. If I'm honest with you, I want you to only see enough of my sin that you'll relate to me, but not enough that you'll actually know me. I hate confessing that to you. But that is how I often treat my sin. I want you to see it because I want you to know I'm human. But I don't want you to think it actually controls me because I want you to listen. I want you to like me. I treat the sin in my life just like I treat the weeds in my grass. I just mow over the top of it. And for a little while, it's not noticeable. For a little while, everything will look just Great, but sin, just like the weeds in my yard, always shows itself, and it always grows faster than the good stuff. That's why, that's why so much of our news is nothing but bad news, because that's the story people want to hear. And we have, we have this guy Lot. We have this man of faith. That's how Peter spoke of him. Okay, so Lot is a believer. The Bible says that Lot is a God-fearer. The Apostle Peter calls him, literally, his his nickname for Lot is Righteous Lot. He even points to us, even Peter points to how distressed in his heart Lot was of the situation in which he finds himself here in Sodom. And so we have this one who who is called righteous, but when we find him, he's lingering, hesitating. 
And here's the problem that so many of us struggle with, is that even in our testimony of belief, even, our, even in our profession of faith, we're reluctant to walk in the new life that God has called us to. We're reluctant to walk in the life that Jesus has purchased for us. Remember, some people came and begged on his door. Well, they came and found him in a garden. And instead of hiding, instead of offering someone else in his place, what did he do? He offered himself. You see, he gave himself for us. And so we're reluctant. I don't know why this is, but we're still reluctant to let go of the idols of our heart, whether it's comfort, maybe it's material possessions like Lot. Maybe it's just our status in whatever community we belong to. Maybe it's just pleasure. Maybe we just like feeling good, regardless of how momentary and fleeting it is. Maybe it's our pride. Maybe it's our pride that says we can still strangle our own righteousness out of our lives. All of these distractions, Christ calls us to leave them behind. We still cling so closely to the things of the world. We have this reluctance to turn loose of the areas of life that have been our comfort and our security. We still go running to them, even as they have constantly frustrated us constantly let us down, constantly wounded us, even tried to kill us. And we forget the simple and profound truth that we find in Galatians, that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Listen, I don't know what it is that you're still clinging to from the old life, from the old self. Maybe it's just the old life that you're clinging to. The offer of Christ is to let go of the past. It is to be set free from that. That is not your story anymore. That is not your identity anymore. It's to be liberated from that and to walk with Him in the present. The challenge for Lot And we see it in his family. We'll see it as we continue looking at him and his family in coming weeks. That he still holds on to the things of the world. He knows the goodness and mercy of God. He's even experienced it. He confesses that I've experienced your mercy. And yet he still walks by sight. When the call for us is to walk by faith is to trust in Christ, is to trust in God, even in the moments when we don't seem to know what's going on. That's the call for us. It's the mandate for us. Not one of encouragement. It's get up, go, live, be free in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive my Forgive me for holding on to the things of the world. Forgive me for holding on to my pride. Forgive me for holding on. I don't have any status. Forgive me for hanging on to what little shred of possible status I might have. Forgive me for holding on to the the temporal and sensory pleasures of the earth instead of pursuing you and trusting you. Forgive me for exchanging freedom for slavery. Lord, I pray that you would help your people to walk in the freedom that you've purchased for us. 
to walk in the freedom that you provided through your sacrifice for our sins, your atoning sacrifice, your, your righteous sacrifice for the justice that we deserve. Lord, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to embrace that today and walk in it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close out this time, I wanted to share a, a quick benediction with you, if I can find it. This is a constant battle. Every time we do these, we're a little out of order, so I'm always struggling to find the benediction. But this is a very short one. I've referenced Galatians a couple of times, and here's, here is the benediction from the very end of Galatians. Reach out and receive the Lord's benediction here. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen.